So it's really tapping into what's going on in the world today, the rising cost of living and letting renters earn some extra income by hosting, but also giving the building owner benefits for them as well to encourage and support the hosting of their residents part-time. Good morning. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. Today, we are chatting with Airbnb's global head of real estate about a new venture the firm launched back in November that it's calling Airbnb-friendly apartments. So Airbnb has partnered with landlords to specifically set up certain units for short-term rentals. So that means any tenant moving in will do so with the understanding that they have the option to rent the apartment if they go out of town. In the past, Airbnb has struggled to get landlords on board with tenants renting out apartments on the platform. So this move is really notable for the firm. Right. So we'll get into some of the challenges that Airbnb has faced with landlords and in New York City. But first, on to the news of last week. WeWork may soon be unavailable to trade through the New York Stock Exchange. The co-working firm received a non-compliance notice from the exchange, given the fact that its stock has traded below a dollar for the last 30 consecutive trading days. It's a big fall from grace for the company, which had touted a huge IPO years ago before it failed and founder Adam Newman was ousted from the firm. Right. WeWork eventually filed to go public in October 2021 through what's called a SPAC or Special Purpose Acquisition Company. (laughs) RIP the SPAC. Mm -hmm. What was its debut price? Its stock closed at $11.78 per share on its first day of trading. And on Tuesday, last Tuesday, after that New York Stock Exchange notice, WeWork stock dropped to $0.48 a share. So a 95% decline since it opened. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. A huge, huge drop. Speaking of office companies with delisted shares, Brookfield's public downtown LA entity was also recently delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. The share price was hovering at just above $1, which was putting it at risk of delisting. So Brookfield voluntarily decided to pull the trigger and go for it first. Mm, Okay, so cut it to the chase. That's the entity that defaulted on this $765 million worth of loans in downtown LA, right? Yeah, that's the one connected to two office towers. And on the topic of distress, you had a story about a mezzanine lender on one of Blackstone's multifamily portfolios looking to sell off the loan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Blackstone bought 11 multifamily buildings in Manhattan in this partnership with Fairstead several years back. It took out a $271 million CMBS loan on the portfolio. So that's the senior debt when we think about the capital stack. Below that, there's this $93 million mezzanine loan that's split into two parts, A and B note. So the news is the lender who holds the second piece of that mezzanine loan, the B note, the riskiest piece of debt, that piece that gets paid back last, put it up for sale. The lender put it up for sale. So brokers say marketing the loan indicates the buildings could be headed toward default or foreclosure. And we know that the property is having some cash flow shortfalls last month. Moody's downgraded the CMBS debt, citing cash flow that wasn't covering debt service. And in February, the loan had already gone to special servicing. So brokers believe the MES holder wanting to offload the debt indicates the buildings may be worth the value of the CMBS loan 
but not the full value of the mezzanine debt. So in that case, a foreclosure would fall to the mezzanine lender. And the sense is that the mez lender, which is this Korean group called Inmark, it just doesn't have any interest in owning the property. But another lender might be willing to pick up that debt and then recapitalize the portfolio. I'm definitely interested in seeing who picks that mezzanine loan up and if it even sells. I think that'll be a good indicator of where multifamily loans and the commercial real estate market you know, stands right now. For sure. And at the risk of talking too much about Blackstone, we did get some insight into the investment giant's performance last week. Distributable earnings slipped 36% year over year and fewer real estate deals. So the firm's inability to pull profits from investment sales contributed heavily to that decline. So the earnings were just another sign that higher rates are still stymieing deal flow. Mm-hmm. We touched on this a few weeks ago, but real estate players are not happy about a proposal from Chicago mayor-elect Brandon Johnson to bulk up the city's real estate transfer tax. CoStar data shows about a fifth of the new revenue would come from apartment sales, so multifamily landlords, they're not thrilled. Right. And we've already seen the effects of a new transfer tax play out in L.A. Um, One example of that is the Rubin brothers said they got hit with a big tax bill after they foreclosed on Century Plaza. We've talked about this before, the $2.5 billion development in Century City. The Rubens acquired it for about a billion dollars and got hit with $55 million in additional taxes thanks to the city's new measure. We still don't have the actual records of the foreclosure since they haven't been filed with the county yet. So it'll be interesting to see that on paper. I think it's going to be one of the first examples of the transfer tax applying to a foreclosure and seeing how large of an effect this transfer tax will have on sales. So the city hasn't offered an exemption for foreclosures? No, the city lists a bunch of exemptions on its website for the new transfer tax. Um, One is for affordable housing providers. For example, if an affordable housing developer buys and sells a building, they won't be subject to the tax. But there is no exemption for foreclosures online. And according to the attorneys for the Rubens, they weren't exempt. Yeah. Speaking of housing regulations, I want to jump over to New York very quickly. Governor Hochul's budget as of the time that we're recording this, is three weeks late and housing policies seem to be the sticking point there. Our reporter, Katie Brenzel, broke the news that most of Hochul's housing agenda, which includes an extension for projects seeking the crucial 421A tax break and measures that would promote office to residential conversions, have both been scrapped. And now good cause eviction seems to have moved into the fulcrum position. So Lawmakers say the state needs to bake that tenant protection plus a voucher program into the budget or just toss everything. Hopefully we'll get some clarity on that soon. And our last items today both involve layoffs. Yes. So first, Walker and Dunlop, the commercial brokerage, laid off 110 employees or about 8% of their staff. In a note to the staff, CEO Willie Walker said the firm does not have quote, visibility when market activity will return to normal and must take action. And on the resi side, Redfin made its third round of layoffs so far this year, cutting 201 employees. That's about 4% of the brokerage's staff. In a similar vein to Walker and Dunlop, Redfin said it needed to make the cuts because of the continuing housing downturn and general economic uncertainty. 
I buy our open door cut workers too. The firm said it would lay off another one in five workers, so that's 560 employees, and it's the company's second round of cuts since the market began to turn last fall. We also saw affordable housing provider Fairstead usher in a round of layoffs. We know commercial and residential brokerages have taken a hit as deal volume has slowed, but multifamily investors have been fairly well insulated from that downturn. Sources told The Real Deal that Fairstead cut about 10% of its 700-person staff as it outsourced jobs to India. The firm only commented that it had to make some, quote, realignments after a big growth year in 2022. And actually, I just want to squeeze one more news item into the morning roundup, given it relates to our Airbnb chat. Starwood Capital Group signed on to its Airbnb-friendly apartments venture, joining the likes of Graystar and Equity Residential, so another heavy hitter joining the pack. Airbnb's move to partner with landlords is really interesting. They are expanding their base here and allowing tenants to essentially turn their apartment into a short-term rental, but also allow the landlord to get a cut. And if you Google Airbnb right now, it comes up as I think their head is vacation homes and condo rentals. This is something new. Right. And theoretically, this could help them woo landlords in New York City too and like possibly pick up revenue from the city, but that would also require some rollbacks of recent laws that the city has passed. The city council, the mayor, really cracked down on Airbnb last year. Basically, it effectively banned short-term rentals in the city for any stay less than 30 days. What do you think the likelihood of actually rolling back that legislation is? Honestly, not high. You know, there is that story either earlier this year or late last year that there are more Airbnb listings in the city than available apartments. So there's issues with you know, supply and the super high demand we've seen over the past two years. But to be fair, I asked Jesse the same question and, you know, he was cautiously optimistic about it. Well, let's have you guys take it away. Can you introduce yourself to start? Jesse Stein, Global Head of Real Estate at Airbnb. Airbnb back in November launched this venture, Airbnb Friendly Apartments. Um, and my understanding of the product is that it allows a tenant to list their apartment on Airbnb with the pre-approval of the landlord. So do I have that right? Yeah, really, really close. So first and foremost, consumers can now go to Airbnb and browse apartments across the country that encourage and support uh, part-time hosting. And then consumers can contact the building move in and then become a host when they move into the building and the building has full transparency and control over the program. So I was hoping you could talk first a bit about what makes the service novel because like I've certainly rented Airbnbs where it seems as though the person listing the unit is a tenant themselves. So what's different about this? Yeah, when you look at the landscape and you take a step back and you look at the overall housing stock in the US, there's roughly 45 million rentals in the US. And for a variety of reasons, the vast majority of those rentals um, do not uh, allow part-time hosting on Airbnb. So we wanted to create a program where the individuals um, that rent have the same economic benefits as the individuals that own their homes to host on Airbnb. So we created this program really because of the user demand. Uh, We saw this in our data where the majority of our hosts today own their homes and the minority of our hosts today uh, rent their homes in which they host it. And it's disproportionate because 35% of all housing is rentals, but very, very few of our hosts are in rentals. So we were talking to our partners, we were talking to consumers, and we came up with a win-win program for everybody. 
for the building owner, for the renter, as well as for local municipal uh, jurisdictions in which we play. So it's really a, a um, tapping into kind of what's going on in the world today and the, the rising cost of living and letting renters earn some extra income by hosting, but also giving the building owner benefits for them as well to encourage and support the hosting of their residents part-time. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I cover landlords for the real deal and I know that a headache for them, you know, if they have tenants who are using Airbnb can be that there's safety issues, you know, other tenants in the building might be freaked out with strangers coming in. I think it is also like a principal thing for some owners where they don't really want their renter to be um, like profiting off of their investment in the building. So how do these Airbnb friendly apartments address some of those complaints? So like what's in it for the landlords? Yeah, of course. But let me start with the integrity of the program and kind of what one of our guiding principles of the program are is. And the guiding principle of the program is really to ensure that the community stays residential. We want to have individuals host part-time if they choose but what we're seeing across the board is hosts are hosting four to six nights a month. So it's not like you have a building, um, let's just make up some numbers, a hundred unit building. You, you're not seeing seven, 70 people in that building host 365 nights a year. First and foremost, these individuals live in these communities. They have neighbors, they're part of the community and they're hosting part-time. So I, I definitely hear that feedback. Um, and that's one of the pillars of, of the program is to ensure the fabric of the community stays residential and providing the landlord with the tools. So now when an individual wants to become a host, if he or she chooses, first thing they have to do is sign a lease addendum with their landlord. And their landlord then outlines whatever the building rules may be, whatever the nightcaps may be, so on and so forth. And we work with the building owners to ensure that the residents are living up to those standards by providing them with transparency uh, into the activity and approval rights over the listings. I know that you have partnered with some of the biggest landlords in the country. Can you talk about some of those partnerships and also some of the cities that you've launched in? Because I know it's quite a few. We launched in roughly 30 geos across the country, including Los Angeles, Miami, Atlanta, Phoenix, Dallas, so on and so forth. And we have some of the largest owners in the country, uh, Graystar, UDR, Equity Residential. And we also have some very regional owners as well. We have an owner in, in Los Angeles that has one building and their family owns 40, a 42 unit apartment complex. And we're partnering with that individual as well. And the communities have really responded well, both from a political perspective as well as a residential perspective, because the individuals in the buildings now know that the landlord has full transparency and control over the program. So the issues or the concerns you brought up earlier are kind of minimized uh, because the residents now know the landlord has visibility and control. And the cities love it as well because it does make living in these you know, high cost markets a little bit more affordable simply because if like, I'll give an example. We have a host in San Diego. Uh, her name is Gina. She's active duty military. She's hosted about 40 to 50 nights over the last year and earned roughly $15,000. Um, she's used that money to pay off her student loans and actually start a business in the community. So it's really, really powerful for all, all stakeholders involved. And obviously, there's also transient occupancy taxes in which we pay in these markets as well. 
So it's a win-win for all stakeholders. About the Gina anecdote, I was reading something recently about someone who was on disability and they said, you know, renting their apartment on Airbnb is like how they are able to stay in the unit. So it seems like that's the case for a lot of users. Well, it's the overwhelming majority of our hosts that do rent use the money to keep up with the rising cost of living. It's roughly 60 to 70% of the hosts that are in rentals use it to keep up with the cost of living. I mean, a $5 foot long is not a $5 foot long anymore. So everything costs everything costs more. And you know, at the end of the day, wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. So creating a little bit of incremental revenue while you're away is a great opportunity to do that. And I understand for the landlords, they also earn a commission by using the platform. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, of course. So the landlords get the opportunity to charge a commission. And that commission is anywhere from zero, honestly, no commission, to roughly 25%. And it's across the spectrum. And the landlords really use that money to oversee the program as well as enhance the community. The other huge benefit to the landlord is we are now marketing our partners' buildings on Airbnb for free. So we are not charging our partners uh, when one of our consumers moves in and lives in the building. Unlike some of the other individuals in the space, we do not charge a fee for a 12-month unfurnished rental. It is completely free. And then landlords also have transparency and control, as well as a potential commission. So from a landlord perspective, you know, it's a really, really good value proposition. And we're actively growing uh, new partners and scaling with our existing partners uh, right now. Can you talk a bit about the, I guess, sort of macro changes that we've seen since the pandemic that have made like an Airbnb friendly apartment more appealing to tenants, maybe because they're working remotely or they're moving around more? What's going on there? That's the beauty about the Airbnb model is we're able to adapt quickly and create new products that are able to scale quickly uh, based on consumer demand. And obviously during COVID, most individuals were working from home. A lot of folks are now going back to the office, but for the most part, the majority of the world is not going back five days a week. So people are just more flexible and people are yearning to travel and they're traveling more than they were pre-COVID. And, you know, that costs money. And so why not monetize, you know, your apartment on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, when you're traveling to wherever Um, I'm doing this call from home. I don't know where you're doing it, but I'm in the office. Likewise. Yeah. I'm I'm in the office uh, very rarely. Consumers are also traveling longer. um, And you'll see that in our data. You know, I think roughly 20 to 25% of our nights booked are for over 30 days at a time. So people are just more flexible. And this is a way for consumers to live that lifestyle while still maintaining their primary residence and being able to offset some of those costs by hosting part-time. Going into some of the criticisms, um, one of short-term rental platforms such as Airbnb is that it limits housing supply while we're in the throes of a housing crisis, um, and that can push up rents. But I believe you mentioned before that this product could sort of remedy that issue. So what's your take there? First and foremost, we just need more housing in the U.S. We are just undersupplied from a housing perspective, and we are huge advocates of incremental housing across the board, and we support incremental housing across the board. When it comes to this program, this program 
is really catered and the integrity of it is for individuals that live in these units and they host part-time. Like I mentioned earlier, hosts here are hosting four to six nights a month. They're not hosting 20 nights a month. And when you do the math on the four to six nights a month, it's virtually impossible, if not impossible, to arbitrage or run a business out of hosting four to six nights a month. The math just does not work. So what we're really seeing is people using this money to keep up with the cost of living and keep up with their lifestyles. Um, and it's actually helping people move into their first apartment. We have a host in Nashville. She's been living at home. She works in a hotel uh, in Nashville. And the fact that she was able to host gave her the opportunity to move out of her home into her own apartment. And then when there is compression in the market, she hosts and then she goes back and stays with mom and dad to save money and God willing buy a home one day. Um, so it's really kind of inverse of uh, that criticism or that concern. This is actually helping individuals stay in their homes or get into homes for the first time. Last question, because I cover New York and New York in the past year has really cracked down on Airbnb. I'm wondering, like, do you think there's any hope that lawmakers could see the benefits of a product like this that appeals to both landlords and the tenant side of things? There's always hope. Um, at the end of the day, the, the core the core of the program is really to help Gina, help this individual in Nashville stay in their home and move into their home. And if we are able to ensure that those individuals live in their homes and host part-time, I don't see who loses in that. I think everybody wins. So we are strong believers in the program. We want to work with cities. Uh, we are actively working with a variety of cities to uh, provide this opportunity to other individuals in those markets where they're not currently allowed to host in rentals. So New York is one, there are, there are others, um, and we're actively working with those cities. And of course there's hope. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at how moles are getting turned into apartments. Tune in then.